And uh, church, open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Open your Bibles up. Um, share a little bit of my uh, story with you. So, um, though I did not always trust in Jesus, I did grow up in church and around church. So, uh, what that means is, especially like uh, around church music. My brother was a musician. I looked up to my brother, uh, and he was singing all sorts of church music all the time. I got involved in music, and and so uh, the reality is, if you grow up in church. And especially if you grow up singing church music, uh, that there is this kind of jargon that develops with church and with church music. And so you, uh, what, what is jargon? Well, really, I think like my simplest definition of jargon is that you, use to, you, you learn to use words in certain circumstances where you don't really know what the words mean, but you just know that they belong in that place, right? And, and if you ask anybody in any other context, what do the words mean that you're using right now? It's like, uh, they don't really understand, right? They don't get it, right? So it's out of place. So I'd love to give some examples of uh, jargon that we use in, in church songs. Uh, like, for example, in the song, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, we say, uh, here I raise my Ebenezer. How many people in this room know what an Ebenezer is? It's not Scrooge. Uh, and, of course, we have Ebenezer Church with us today, right? Ebenezer is here, yeah. Uh, and we're grateful to have them with us. But Ebenezer uh, is... Uh, it, it remembers back to the Old Testament. It was a time, it's a kind of monument that you build to say, this is how far the Lord has brought me. The Lord has brought me this far. That's what an Ebenezer is, right? Okay, so just so you have that. Uh, we, we sing the song in all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. How many people know what it means to be prostrate, right? A few people, perhaps. Uh, it means to fall on your face, Right to, to, to be so overwhelmed with the glory of God that uh, the angels would fall down on their face worshiping him. And then in that same song, we sing, uh, bring forth the royal diadem. How many people use that in their, their language every day? Let's talk about diadems all the time, right? But they're, they're talking about what is the royal diadem. It's a crown. It's a crown that's placed upon Jesus' head. Uh, and then we use other things in church that, like, we talk about, oh, you know, you, we share our testimony. You know, we share our testimonies together. If you, go, if you go out to, like, anybody who doesn't, you know, isn't a part of church, and we tell them, oh, we shared our testimonies in church yesterday. They're like, Wait, what'd you do? What, yeah, what's that, right? We, we, like, did you go into a court and, like, uh, you know, like, stand before a judge, right? That's kind of their perspective of what that word is. But what, what we're really saying is we're just telling our story. Or, I mean, my goodness, I, we use this word all the time. Oh, that's, that's such a blessing. That's... That's a real blessing that we have. Like, what does that word actually mean? Like, when, when God talked about being blessed, what does it actually mean to be blessed? We, talked about being, we talk about being blessed all the time, which generally is just this, like, sense of, oh, you know, things are going well, right? I'm blessed, right? But, uh, but we don't really think about the word and what it means. And there could be, you know, countless examples of these. I think this is particularly important because there's another word that I used and sang all the time growing up in church. And this word is glory. Glory. And I used that word in the right context without ever really thinking about what it meant. And that feels a little problematic to me because especially like at Christmas time, we are singing all sorts of songs that talk about 
glory. You know, angels we have heard on high, it's literally like half the song where you sing glory. You just sing that the whole time. You sing the word glory. That's essentially the song, angels we have heard on high. Uh, or angels from the realm of glory. That's a very uh, Christmas-oriented song, right? We sing about these things. And then, of course, we have the passage that was read this morning, that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So I think it's worth asking the question, what are we talking about, and why is this word used so frequently? So today we are starting a Christmas series, an Advent series called Glory. Now before we get into the passage, we just kind of need to address this question, what is glory? Now I'm gonna get a little technical with you, uh, but the technicality is to help us understand a little bit more what's going on. So glory in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and this is the word that's used in the Old Testament when talking about glory, and it's talking about the significance of a thing according to its weight. So significance of something expressed in weight or heaviness. The word literally means to be heavy. Uh, And so that's the Hebrew word. It's the significance of a thing expressed in heaviness or weightiness. And then in the New Testament, you have the Greek language. The Greek language uses this word doxa or doxa. uh, And it is the significance of a thing expressed more in terms of radiance and light and brilliance. Right? So, so both of these words are using kind of different concepts to relate to us the significance of something. So glory, it had this kind of general use in describing people or things when it was used in kind of normal language, non-religious language, if you will. Uh, people used this word to speak of people who held positions of high authority. Uh, they used this word to describe people who had a lot of wealth and a lot of power. And so what these words do is they indicate a high level of significance, right, Uh, in relation to other people, right? So there's kind of a comparison going on. So, So when I speak of someone as having glory, I can only speak of them as having that because I'm recognizing their status over other people or over and above other people when I speak of someone as having glory. And it's interesting that the most frequent use of the term glory is used in relation to God, in the, in the Bible, as we see it used, it's used in relation to God. Both Old Testament and New Testament, they take these ideas of light and weight, and, and they have overlapping meaning, right? So that we can see, even though the Old Testament is using this word for weight, it does carry this idea of light with it. And even though the New Testament is using this idea of light, it carries this idea of weight with it. And both of these are used to encapsulate, essentially, like, what people experience when they see God, when they are in God's presence, right? So so why are light and weight the concepts that the writers of Scripture use? Well, uh, light and weight are words of substance, right? They communicate the impact of God's presence, Right, so have you ever heard of a person having gravitas? Right, we talk about someone as having gravitas. What we're saying when we use that word is that you can feel that person walk into the room, 
by the way everybody else in the room responds to that person? Imagine like the President of the United States walks in the door right now, uh, and no matter what you think about the President of the United States, there is just this reality that when he walks in the room, everybody in the room will feel his presence in the room because of who he is, because of his status, because of his authority, right? Uh, So the people come into the room. Or you think of in a wedding, who has all the gravitas in a wedding? The bride. The bride walks in and instantly the whole room zeroes in on her, right? She is the center of gravity in this room. And this also just happens with people who have charismatic personalities, right? You're in a party and you know the person who is the life of the party. In a sense, they have this kind of gravitas. Everything gravitates towards them. So these words, these uh, light and weight and glory, what they do is they arise and they describe what it is about God that gives him gravitas, right? That creates the experience of what it is to be in his presence. He is heavy. He is light. He is weight. He is pure in the way that he shines. These substances, the light and weight, they describe what it is to be in the presence of the most significant being in the universe. If, if what they're communicating to us is the significance of the one that they represent, then the experience of light and weight tell us what it is to be in the presence of the most significant being in the universe. He is glorious. So when we kind of now come to a definition of God's glory, this is essentially what we're saying. God's glory is the substance of his significance over and above all things. The substance of his importance, his loftiness, his uh, lifted up above everything else, right? The substance of his, uh, his significance over and above all things. So when other people witness God, experience God, are in God's presence, they use the word glory to describe the thing that impacted them. Right, so 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14 to illustrate this. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and verse 14, so that the priests could not stand to minister. Now, if you have a different translation, it's, it, it, what it says is uh, the priests were not able to minister. But the, what the words literally say is the priests could not stand in order to do their job. Right, So when the glory of the Lord fills the place, it's as if there's a gravity in this place so strong that the only response that the priests who are in that place have is to fall on their face because they can't even sustain their bodies under the weight of God's presence in that place. That is God's glory. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So glory is not just a substance but it is a very effective substance, right? It, it is tangible. It is uh, experiential. It has impact on those who experience it, which also means that glory is inherently relational, right? It's meant to be experienced by others. It is effective because of its impact, right? It impacts other people. So it's the impact of his glory that makes us understand who he is, right? When we see his glory, we go, oh, like, oh, he's the most significant being in the whole universe. Okay, I get it now, 
It communicates something to us. So here's what's crazy. Every human experiences reflections of God's glory all the time. Right, so we were talking about this this morning. Like, if you've ever had the joy of holding a newborn baby or even being present when that baby is born, you know something of the reflection of the glory of God in that moment. What it is to hold a life that is brand new into this world. Right, that is a reflection of the glory of God. Um, when we see, uh, you know, I guess it was a few months ago now, the, this James Webb telescope uh, came out and it started giving us all of these kind of hyper detailed pictures of space and uh, everything that was in space. And uh, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts and different things and uh, about the time that these pictures started coming out, uh, Almost every person that I listened to was talking about these pictures, and all of them kind of said basically the same thing, even though they weren't necessarily Christians or didn't necessarily agree with the things that I believe. All of them said, when I see that, I feel so small. I feel so small. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the president, he, uh, he had this friend of his, and uh, him and his friend, what they would do is uh, he would take this friend outside. They would go and spend some t- time outside. And what they would do is they would challenge each other to look up in the sky and see how many stars they could name together. And so they would just sit out there for a while and they, they you know, would have this kind of competition. And then at the end of the time, they said like, oh, uh, Teddy would say, he's like, okay, I think we feel small enough now. We can go back inside. Right? These are just small examples of experiencing and witnessing things that are mere reflections of God's glory. They are not God's glory itself. They are reflections of God's glory. Okay, so we're starting to grasp what God's glory is. Uh, but we can't continue talking about God's glory without talking about what its result is. So, uh, so I'll just kind of give you some examples or ideas from Scripture of what its result is. Um, when glory is increased in concentration, it keeps people away. So Exodus 40, 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to go in because God's glory was so concentrated that he was literally not able to physically pass into it. Um, God's glory is fearful to those who oppose him. Psalm 102.15. It says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Uh, God's glory, for what it's worth, it convicts of sin, convicts people of sin. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is kind of caught up in this vision of the Lord. He sees the Lord sitting on his throne, high and exalted, the angels around the throne worshiping, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then, immediately after that, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Finally, we have this idea that if human beings were to fully experience the glory of God, we wouldn't last. And Moses 
talks to God and has this bold request of him in Exodus chapter 33. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, you know what? I'll make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my name before you, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show most mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. All right, so some observations. When God shows up in a place, when he is there in that place, his glory comes with him, right? His glory shows up with him. Uh, By God's definition, to see his full, unveiled glory is the same as seeing him face to face. And when people catch glimpses of God's glory, like in Isaiah, it has this kind of purifying effect on those people. So on the whole, the overwhelming story about glory seems to be this. To people corrupted by sin, God's glory is purging and terrifying. That's what it is. That's why every time God's glory shows up or an angel shows up and the glory shines around, the people are terrified and they literally have to be told, do not fear because it is a terrifying experience. When it's in a place, people fall on their face. When people witness it, they either tremble or they fall down under its weight. And to fully see and experience it when we're corrupt, like if his glory has this experience of light and weight with it, then to fully experience his glory as corrupted humanity would mean being blinded and being burned and being crushed under the weight of it. So it's no surprise then that Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so if all of that is true and we celebrate at Advent, Emmanuel, God with us, That's what we celebrate at Advent. Why are we celebrating? If God's glory is blinding and crushing, why are we celebrating God with us? Emmanuel, how is it remotely possible that the central promise of Scripture is God with us? That Scripture is telling the story of a God who is coming to be with humanity. Remember, this, like, this was the primary promise to Israel. This, this, was the prim- this is the promise of the new heavens and new earth. He says, I will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be with them. That is what God is trying to accomplish. God is coming to be with people. God's promise is, I'm coming to be with you. But as we consider God in all his glory being with us, like just in light of the definition that we covered, God with us should seem, number one, scandalous. It should seem scandalous that someone so glorious would have association with people who are so corrupt. And the second thing is, it should seem impossible that we would have any hope of survival or much less joy and safety in his presence, right? That's what, he, that, like, those are the things that are offered to us in Christ, but that should not seem right. Somehow, we're not just told that we're um, 
invited into his presence and that we're going to survive in his presence, but that we're told uh, in his presence there is joy forevermore. How is that possible? Okay, so that brings us to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. So we've, uh, we took a long time to get here, but now uh, if you're open, you know, opening your Bibles, that's where we are. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing is he is talking to the body, the church of God there in Philippi, and he's saying you all are relating to each other. You have relationships that you've built, and I want to kind of inform you on the ways that you should relate to each other. And so this is the way that he does this. As you relate to each other, I want you to think about Christ. So let me give you a little bit of a theology lesson about Jesus to tell you how to relate to each other. Let's talk about Jesus. So verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So for what it's worth, Jesus and the Father, like Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So what that means is they are of the same essence, right? They, they, have, they, they share in deity together. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We, we read things. Jesus was in the beginning. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit creating and sustaining creation together, which means that whatever glory belongs to the Father also belongs to Jesus, Right? All of the glory that God has, Jesus has. Jesus has all of it, every bit of it. So remember, glory has this kind of relational element to it. It, it communicates something to those who witness it. It kind of proves to us the, the status of the one that we witness. Like Part of the nature of glory is to impact those who witness it. Right? Part of its nature is to emphasize comparison. It creates in us, like as we experience glory, it creates in us incredibly su substantial awareness of the utter significance of God above everything else. That is in Jesus. How interesting then that Paul, in his description of the first action that Jesus took in his coming, started with this word equal with God. He uses a word of comparison with God. It says, being noticed as equal with God, his glory, essentially what we're saying is, his glory being apparent, right? His significance over and above all things being notice, noticeable to those who witness him. His glory being apparent. For a time, Jesus took that comparison, that equality with God, and he considered that for himself to be low priority. He said, uh, it's, uh, it's not something to be grasped. I'm gonna, if I have a, a list of priorities, uh, while typically that might remain pretty close to the top, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to set the importance of that to myself aside, and I'm going to make it low priority. What that does not mean, Jesus did not set his glory aside. He did not remove himself from his glory. What he did was he said, me being seen is important me being seen as most significant in all creation, other people noticing who I am, I'm going to make that of low priority for a time. So consider yourself for a second. How low of a priority is your own significance to you? I, I, like, I asked myself that question this week. When someone at work takes credit for something you did, how low of a priority is your own significance to you? 
when a family member consistently overlooks the way that you serve them and continue serving them and continue serving them, how low of a priority is your own significance to you? When your faithfulness and hard work goes unnoticed, how low of a priority is your own significance to you? When you don't get an award that you deserve, how low of a priority is your own significance to you? Imagine, imagine for a second, getting your soul to agree. Yes, I will do important things, things that actually matter, but no one needs to notice it. Yes, I will work hard, but I don't need the credit for it. Yes, I will serve others, but I am willing to be overlooked in the process. That's essentially what Jesus did. Right? His significance being noticed by others became a low priority to him for a time. To say it another way, what Jesus did required the highest degree of humility. What Jesus did required the highest degree of humility. He was willing to set what was most significant about him, most noticeably significant about him, aside for a time for some purpose. And that's what we will see as it goes on. Philippians 2, verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that word servant. Pretty much every time you see that word servant, you could pretty much impose the word slave for it, and you would get the same uh, meaning there. So he was in the form of God. That's what we read in the last verse. He was in the form of God, and what he did was he took on the form of a slave. Right? That quite literally, what he did is he transitioned from the one who was deserving of all service to one who served all. How? By being born into humanity. By becoming human. By becoming one who is just another vulnerable, weak human being. Essentially, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, there was a time when Jesus, the most glorious and significant being in the whole universe allowed himself to become unrecognizable. There was a time when the creator of the universe allowed people to experience him as inglorious and insignificant. Right, so let's just consider the circumstances of his birth. Um, Jesus' mom was pregnant out of wedlock, right, which in a highly religious Jewish society was not a good thing. And then, his earthly dad is essentially viewed forever as a moral failure within his society because his wife was pregnant out of wedlock. He loses all status that he would have previously gained. And then you have the location of their birth, which this is just really fun and interesting. So we read that uh, Jesus, uh, that Jesus's family, Mary and Joseph, they went to the inn. Uh, the inn is essentially another word. They went for a room that would accept them. So there's nothing telling us that this is necessarily a place where you would, it's not like a hotel where you necessarily go and pay for a room. In fact, as we just examine censuses and how they worked, and as we look at kind of research of, of history and how these things typically work, the very, very likely thing that happened is everybody, when they went back to their hometowns, they were going to the house of their families. 
They all went back to the houses of their family. So Mary and Joseph were going to Joseph's family's house. And when it says in, it's like a room to receive them. Uh, he w- they went to Joseph's family's house with pregnant Mary. And Joseph's family saw Joseph arrive there and said, we have no room to receive you. Which probably means that they were so shamed by Joseph and Mary's moral failure that said, you, you can't have a room up here. All the rooms that people stayed in were on the upper room or on the upper floor. You can't have a room up here. But, you know, where the animals live, they live on the bottom floor. Um, so I guess you can go stay down there with the animals. This wasn't just anybody saying, hey, we're all filled up for the night. We don't have enough room. Too many people have come. And so I guess the best we can do is give you a stable. This was his family, Joseph's family, saying, we don't have room for you because you are a shame to our family's name. So you can go to the bottom floor and you can have your baby down there. And then you have the first people who get the news of Jesus' birth. They're shepherds. Shepherds are the, like, dirty, smelly, undignified shepherds, not like not Caesar, not, uh, not people in high levels of authority. No governor gets this news immediately. The first people to get the news are dirty and smelly shepherds. Everything about Jesus' birth was inglorious and insignificant. And for what it's worth, the prophet Isaiah hinted at this. Isaiah 11.1 1 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. What is a stump? A stump is a very large remains of an old tree, right? We've cut that tree down. That tree's not working anymore. Things aren't working out. And there's going to be a shoot that comes out of it. A shoot, right? A shoot in comparison to a stump is a very insignificant thing for what it's worth. And then just to reemphasize it, Isaiah says, a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. How could the hope of Israel be something so small and insignificant as to simply be a shoot from the middle of a stump? Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 also hints at this. It says, For he grew up before him, interestingly, like a young plant. This is about Jesus, by the way. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And all of this, it wasn't forced upon him. He chose it. Right? That's why it says at the beginning of Philippians 2.7 that he emptied himself. He made a choice to cover up his real significance. He made a choice to put his glory behind a veil. He made a choice to make his utter importance over everything in the whole entire universe unnoticeable. Why? Why would he do this? Well, we've already talked about it. If he doesn't veil his glory, if God came to be with humans in all of his significance, we would have been burned 
and blinded and crushed. But he covered up his glory and took on the likeness of men. So church, what Jesus did was a matter of care and protection. When he came in human form, it was a matter of care and protection for our sakes because if God comes to be with us and we are yet corrupted, we do not stand a chance. Finally, verse eight. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Remember, I said he was willing to become unnoticeable and insignificant for time, right? His intention was not to be inglorious forever, but for a period of time. What that tells us is that the veiling of his glory had a purpose to it. That purpose was obedience to God's plan. So Isaiah 53, as it goes on, it talks about everything that Jesus would endure. And in verse 7, it says this. It says, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And then verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Remember that thing we said about being crushed earlier? He got crushed. Why? Why was this God's plan? Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, those who who were condemned by the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Right? We are so corrupt that we should not be on the same continent as God. Like, we shouldn't be in the same zip code as God, right? Like, there should be no uh, connection between us as God, but God's will was to adopt us as family, to call us his kids. That was God's will. So Jesus was born like us for one reason, to take on our sins and to die for them so that we could walk away free. He subjected himself to be condemned as a sinner so that we sinners could be free from condemnation and he could call us family. Get this. Glorious gods don't die. Gods who are full of themselves and full of their glory. You think about uh, the different kinds of polytheisms that existed in the day. These gods were very full of themselves and very high on their own glory. Gods don't die. But that is what Jesus did. He took on flesh so that he could die. And what do we get? What do we get from this glorious one? who came, if he takes our condemnation, what do we get instead of condemnation? Do we just get, like, not condemnation? No. Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This is how we are safe in God's presence. He takes our corruption, and we don't just get non-corruption, we get perfection. He takes our sin, and we don't just get not sin, 
we get his righteousness. Because he died, God adopts us into his glorious family as those who are called holy and spotless and blameless and loved. Not because we're good people, but because Jesus died for us. Because he loves us. So church, our main point this morning is this. Jesus veiled his glory to make God with us possible. That's the whole thing. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He went to the cross for our sakes so that we would be able to stand in the presence of God and not be crushed and not be burned and not be blinded, but actually be joyful and be loved and be welcomed and be celebrated. So what? His service only saves you if you trust him. His service to us only saves you if you trust him. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you think that God is going to save you because you do good things? or because you're mostly good and you're not all that bad? Do you think that your flaws and weaknesses aren't that big of a deal? Right, maybe in comparison to others, they're not that big of a deal. As you look at yourself compared to other people, you're like, oh man, I'm doing pretty good. All these other people are losers. I think I'm okay. But what about the glory of God? In comparison to the glory of God, how are you doing? When you see it, I just want to tell you, the good that you have done will not be enough to undo your corruption when the light that reveals all shines on you. The only thing powerful enough to make you pure and spotless and blameless before him is the blood of his son. And that blood is applied by trusting in Jesus above everything else. So if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you're here and you're listening to me and you've been coming and you're not sure where you're at with God, if you haven't yet trusted Jesus, that is the only thing that is gonna make you saved when God comes in his glory. That's the only thing that's gonna protect you when God comes. That's the only thing that's gonna make you experience joy and celebration when he comes and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. So would you trust in Jesus today? Number two, Advent should increasingly humble us into servants. It starts, so that whole passage that we just read in the book of Philippians, it starts by telling us, have this mind among yourselves, which Jesus had. It's the same mind that Jesus had. Increasingly humble yourselves into servants of one another. What does this mean? When we relate to each other, we say, my significance is not important. My brothers and sisters are more important than I am. When we think about how to use our time, what we say is, uh, my time is not my own to serve myself. My time is God's, and he has made me a servant. So how am I going to serve him? When we think about how we use our money, my money does not exist to emphasize my own self-importance. My money is a tool of service, right? Because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. The bearer of all glory veiled his glory to give me the most significant gift that I could never get on my own. 
Right? So as we reflect on Advent and what Jesus did, it should increasingly humble us time and again to do more work on our souls to say, my own self-importance is gonna take a low priority. And then finally, number three, one day his glory will be fully unveiled. Jesus is coming back, y'all. It's gonna be a good day. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He is lifted up, right? His glory, he set it aside for a time and God has lifted him up and now he is fully glorified in heaven so that at the right time, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, would you pray with me, please? Yeah, we can barely begin to imagine or grasp what it would be to stand in your presence. But as we begin trying to imagine that, we thank you for the promises that you give us that because of what Jesus accomplished for our sake, that we can have promises that will dwell in the house of the Lord forever that we can be where you are, that you will be our God and we will be your people. We can be with you. And that's not only a future thing, but Lord, what you did was so significant that, that your glory was able to take up residence inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in each and every single one of us. That is a gift that we cannot begin to comprehend. But Lord, thank you for it. Thank you that we can know what it is to be in your presence and know what it is to enjoy your presence, know what it is to not say we are surviving in your presence, but that we are uh, joyful, that we are thriving, that we are growing. Lord, these things are gifts to us. And if our souls have trouble believing those things, would you teach us how to recognize the goodness of the gift that you have given us? Lord, help us to celebrate these amazing gifts. Thank you for what you've done for our sakes. And help us look forward expectantly to the coming of Jesus when his glory will finally be revealed. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.